dear Lord, we come to you. This is a story that uh, you've told us in the beginning uh, so that even the people that came out of Egypt would understand where they came from. So we ask, as your word is read, that we would hear it again from you and understand the impact of what you're saying, that we are dead in sin. But in Christ, we have been made alive. Let us feel the power of your words. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Hear now the word of God from Genesis 3, verses 8 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the li all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus is the word of God. Thanks be to God. For the next couple of weeks, we will be actually in this set of passages, and Pastor Chris will be preaching next week with his own kind of thoughts and uh, and um, prayerful musings, if you will, as teaching from it as well. As well. So um, we'll just we'll, we'll dive in. Sin is like a super popular topic. What do you do when you do it? When you sin, you mess up, you disobey, you um, do something you know you should not do or do not do something you know you should. I don't know about you, but I have um, some expertise in this subject, sinning. Seems to come out with my children and my friends, my closest relationships. It all seems to provide rich soil but it's not just the ones I love, it's the ones I do not love, it's those people. And yet, the scripture teaches us that those failties, cruelties of act or of in heart are not just an offense to my loved ones or the others, our perceived enemies, they are an offense to God himself first and foremost. So what is sin? Our catechism says that sin is any want or lack of conformity to or transgression, breach of the law of God. Sin is any thought or action that breaches life in God or does not conform to life in God and with God. And our passage today shows how sin is both original to us and ongoing in us. And that it is fundamentally a violation of shalom, a harmony that God created, a harmony with him, with ourselves, our, our mirrors, with our neighbors, and with all of creation. So what do you do when you have any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God? Seriously, what do you do, like physically, emotionally, when you're sharp with your loved ones or, or take that extra bite or sip that extra sip that you know is too much? What do you do when you, you tweet out a flying bit of hatred, either with an actual tweet or, for the rest of us who don't really use Twitter, the silent resentment with the sweet satisfaction of cultivating a grudge or telling, some, telling a story about someone that you know is a deep, wonderful morsel, but it is poison to believe. What do you do? The scripture gives us the response to sin, not just the fact of sin, but the response to sin that we have. And it is a, this passage has the two responses, or the two actors in responding, and that is how we are apt or originally and ongoingly respond, and how God does the same in his response. So we'll start with our reactions first. Our reactions to sin is clear. 
the moment they ate, they were no longer naked and unashamed. They were shamed and they hid. And that is the first response. I know by experience, by being a pastor, and by being a human, that the temptation, the bad reaction that must be unlearned and rejected is to hide in our shame. The great, one of the great instincts that we have is to not just hide, but hide because of this shame. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They knew they were naked, and for the first times in their lives, they could not handle the scrutiny of one another, that's why they covered themselves, or the scrutiny of God, which is why they hid themselves. This is not just because they would be embarrassed if their eyes may have gone southward a little bit. This is because they did not even want to look at each other in the eyes, much less see God. They couldn't bear the weight of it. Now, friends, I am not talking about guilt here. Most times there is nothing wrong with true guilt. Guilt is sharp and clear. Guilt is owning we have done. It kind of gives you a bit of agency. It's an incredibly powerful thing to say, I did this. I made this mistake. This was my decision, and now I bring it to the light. Guilt is not bad. Shame, the way I'm using it here, and the scripture toggles back between guilt and shame in language that usually just means that guilt. The shame that it talks about in, in this passage, you can see it in the way it's written, and the way I'm using it here is dull, and it's amorphous. It's not crystal clear and sharp, and it, and it's a, it ends up avoiding uh, us being able to say, this is what I've done. Not and, it, and then when you do admit it's, it's something you've done, it, it, it morphs into, no, I didn't just cheat. I am fundamentally and only a cheater. It's disempowering because it says there is no hope, and I have no action or agency in this. And frankly, neither does God. Not I made a mistake, but I am a mistake. It's living in the dark. That's why they're hiding in shame. And shame is an epidemic. And it is destroying our families, our marriages, our businesses, our body politic, and our churches. There is so much amazing literature. And you've just had two really helpful talks with the Q&A around shame. And we did not compare notes before I entered into this passage today. You can be the 57th million person who watched Brene Brown on the subject. Go ahead. They're super important. There's a book by, called The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson. I recommend it to your reading. But more, it doesn't just, you know, do injustice to our souls. It poisons them. It's how we see ourselves and how we see others, how we see God. It makes us afraid and alone. Y'all, this is my lifelong struggle. I have a Linus blanket of shame, and I carry it around ready to be put around me at any given point. Sometimes it's to warm me up in my hiding. Sometimes it's to cover my head. 
And sometimes it's to flail about like a paraded flag in a shameless way. But it's a blanket filled with bedbugs and smallpox. It is not good. It does not heal. It does not bring hope. And it gives you no agency or God power to enter in. The first instinct is shame. The second instinct is blame. We react to our sin by running inward or turning inward to self-contempt and shame, but we also turn outward to take that sin and blame another. Adam starts off after God asks, have you eaten of the tree? And he goes, the woman you gave me to be with me or gave who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then he turns to the woman and says, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. If it weren't so tragic, it would be comical. The finger pointing, literally the finger pointing. Blame shifting is soul crushing and relationship severing. And yet it is easy for us to do as we breathe. It is an original and ongoing temptation, an ongoing way of reacting to sin along with shame. It was her fault. It was the serpent's fault. If you just only understood my story, my upbringing, the tragedy of my own life, blame shifting can come in outright denial of wrongdoing, but usually for me, it's just minimizing it. It wasn't that bad. I mean, the effect wasn't that bad, and, and does God really care about that? But worst of all, but maybe always, when you shift the blame, it's a subtle indictment of God himself. It is the woman you gave me. It is a serpent you put in the garden. I remember an ER episode. For those of you who don't know about ER, it was the thing before House, which was like before Grey's Anatomy. Medical dramas are the best because they deal with life and death and tragedy, and every decision you make matters greatly. In one episode, I don't even remember which doctors were which, but I remember the, the anxiety because one of the patients had died. And they had died because there was a misdiagnosis by one doctor. But there was another doctor who administered the, the actual medication that actually killed the person. And so when, those, when the supervisor comes in, she's distraught and angry, frustrated. And they begin to blame one another, the two doctors who'd made the mistake. And then it flips to the point where they start blaming her for not overseeing them well. It is all too natural for us to do. But the point of the story is that there's a patient lying dead in the room. And to own that with whatever level of responsibility that either one of them had would be the right way to go forward. But we don't need to delve into fiction for such a thing, do we? Yeah, sometimes it's outright when we're feeling aggressive enough, enough a just blame of God himself but it's most of the time, it's something about the way I tell the story 
or bring through my past or my present circumstances or some relationships or some other issues or person or event. For me, as I said before, it typically ends up in minimizing. It's just not that bad. Now, do not hear me wrong. Some of you have been thrown on blame and shame that was not yours to take. And that is wrong. And some of you have been heaped upon those blames with neglect and abuse. I get this, and I get this more than you know. More than I know. And that is real damage that has been done to you. It is not just or good or holy or humble to take on the responsibility of someone else's sin in your life by blaming, by shifting that blame back onto you. It's just another way of hiding. It's just another way of not dealing with the reality that is. We are all victims of other people's sin, but we are all victimizers too. So we do not deny either one of those things. We name our sin for what it is and no more and no less, and we take the blame for those actions. It's just way too often easier to blame somebody else. That's why it's important to stay clear of any hiding or any blame shifting and owning what is true in the light with God. So these are our reactions to sin when we sin. And so I would ask you to spend some time this week or this day praying God a most dangerous, to God a most dangerous prayer, a harrowing question that says, Where am I doing this? Will you help me? But I do not want you to do that unless you hear this next part. Because you, what you will do is, again, manage it all on your own. Because the most important part of this passage is not our reaction to sin, but God's reaction to sin. And God's reaction to sin is, his response to sin is filled with truth and love and justice and mercy and grace. And the first thing you see is that when we hide, he seeks. And he brings his very presence to bear even as we are hiding in our shame, even as we are about to do the blame shift. He comes walking in the cool of the gar uh, walking in the cool of the day in the garden. That poetic language is supposed to give you, supposed to emote for you um, uh, a, a sense of, of, of a serenity in the midst of this incredible tragedy that has occurred. This is supposed to be a calm amid the storm of wrecked humanity. God brings his presence to bear. And he asks what I think may be the most tender and truthful kind of question you could ever ask. Where are you? Where are you? They are hiding in their shame of their failure. They are locked and loaded to blame. And God asked Adam, Adam, and it's singular, Adam, the father to the created son, where are you? 
I want you to think about this. At the very point of the devastation of the human of the human race. And Adam as the representative of that human race. God does not start with lightning bolts of judgment. He starts with where are you? And the next question is equally tender and truthful. Who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Who, who revealed to you this kind of shame? Who are you listening to? What are you believing now about me, about you, about her? Who told you? And yet God's presence is not just this kind of intimate tenderness. This, it is a truthful tenderness. He says with utter clarity, have you eaten of the tree? I want you to own the reality. And to Eve, what is this that you have done? He's calling forth the truth of their action. That's actually a call not to blame and shame, but to own, to repent, to tell the truth. God didn't have questions about what was happening. It was a gracious set of questions for them to see where they are in relationship, what they've done in relationship to him who is right there. God gives them the chance, the gracious opportunity to walk away from their shame and simply repent just to tell the truth on themselves with him right there. Now, they opted for a partial truth with a good bit of blame shifting, but God was there amidst them, full of tenderness and truth. And this God who is full of tenderness and truth acts out of that, that tenderness and truth and judges justly and mercifully in it. That the consequences of their betrayal are real. And the judgment is hard to hear. There is so much to say. Maybe Pastor Chris will jump on this. Maybe I'll try to do a lunch or something like that about the curses and what they mean for us. There's so much to say about this kind of sentencing phase. And there's so much ink written. I think the first thing we need to really understand is that God truly demands justice. And so do you want justice so much. We just don't necessarily want it for us. We just want it for everybody else. <laughs> And it's a good thing. The second thing, that even in this pronouncements of a sentence, it was not as harsh as it could have been. He stays his hand from extinguishing them from the earth and even experiencing the full measure of their guilt. Not their shame and their blame, but even their guilt. There are real consequences. But the humans that he made in his image, it is so clear, are not cursed. The serpent was cursed and the ground was cursed. But Adam and Eve are not cursed. They are judged and there are consequences. A just judge for sure but not without mercy, not without a commitment 
to undoing the tragedy that just happened. And it is because God can't help himself. And it is very nature to bring forth fully what he intended at creation. And now he will do it through his grace and his promise. I told you last week about how God would clothe them himself, a tender kindness to them, to them, to give them leather and not those fig leaves we had out last week. And it costs the shedding of blood. A foreshadowing of our own Lord Jesus. But there is more. The story ends with the expulsion from the garden. And yet look at the reason why. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And then it does a little dot. It's almost like, could you imagine if they live in this state of sin and blaming and shame forever? I will not let that happen. I will close off Eden. I will protect them, them from themselves to return, to live eternally without hope, with this condemnation over them. And then there's the most famous of them all. that's built into the judgment scene of the cursing of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, your offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'm not sure they got it completely, but they got that there was a promise coming. I'm pretty sure they didn't go, oh, you mean Jesus? Of course not. But they knew that God was utterly committed that the seed of the womb would, would crush the serpent's head. It's almost mystic sounding when God says it to the, to the deceiver. And Paul comes back up in Romans, explains that, that you and Eve will be at odds from now on. There will come a day when her offspring will injure yours and you will crush his head. It's what theologians called the, uh, the first gospel. It's a promise that God... Uh, refuses to give up on the glory of his creation even after the fall, and that he will give himself to eradicating sin as an eternal reign over his people. He will not stand for an eternity without his beloved, and he will make sin be no more and will not be the last word on humanity. He plans on doing something about it, and that is what he does. He would preserve the line of the daughters and sons of Eve He'd make them a new people. He would give them access to a sacrificial system. And then out of that company, out of that family, a family that was meant to be a blessing to the nations, would come the Lord Jesus Christ, a second Adam, son of Eve. And he will be one who regains humanity back to God. He will be the one that will reopen the gates of Eden so that we one day will partake of the tree of life. See Revelation in just a few weeks. And that would be God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ. And now that is to where we run when we sin. To turn to him and refuse all other responses of blame and shame or the toggling back between the two. Because he is restoring the wreck of the fall 
Adam and Eve were not cursed because Jesus was. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3. Do sin or does sin bring shame and blame and pain and thorns and sweat and sorrow and death? It absolutely does. But Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. So shame, yes, and Jesus took it on himself. Blame, he took the blame for all the sins of Adam and the sons of Adam, and he became the second Adam of a new creation. Even pain in childbirth, the scripture often talks about his whipped back and the pain that he went through so that he might make very children of God. Thorns, he was crowned with them. Sweat, like blood drops. Sorrow, Isaiah predicts he would be a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Death, he would die that we might live. The story of the fall is filled to the brim with the hope of the gospel that God would respond and eradicate the very sin that entered. Had a weird writing week this week. <clears throat> I was kind of not loving my screen, not really wanting to write too much. It was Friday, maybe it was Thursday. I um, decided to just move over from where I usually write and just go over to the youth house and like just grab a Bible instead of being on my computer and just kind of read through it and do like this thing where you use paper and, and a pencil and write stuff down. Um, so I grabbed this Bible. I was just kind of sitting there, and um, I opened up, and I kind of needed a God gift that day, just not feeling it, kind of overwhelmed with the way my sin, what, the way I respond to my sin with shame and blame, especially minimizing. And I opened this Bible, and it's got a bunch of little notes in it, I don't know whose it is or anything, and in a big block rectangle, the top of the page is a square around the words, where are you? And I keep reading, and there's another little note by Genesis 15, and it says, proto yuan which is short for first gospel. And I'm like, man, this guy's good, or this girl's good. She's writing all sorts of cool stuff in here. And I open to the front of the page, and it says, Trip Sanders. Our Lord is mighty to save and tender in our sin. And he comes to us full of justice and truth and mercy. And even from the grave, encourages us that he can be trusted with us with our sin and our shame may he have mercy on us all amen